Thank you for connecting to the Bethany Chapel Sermon Link. Our prayer is that you will find the following sermon helpful and inspiring for your spiritual journey. If you are a visitor to this resource, or if you've not attended our church, we would love to meet you in person. Our vision at Bethany Chapel is opening doors to God's truth and love. God bless you as you listen. This morning we're continuing our series, AD 30, which is basically a chronological journey through the life of Christ. And we're assuming that the scholars who put together these you know, chronological Bibles are getting it right. They're piecing together the various stories of Jesus. The gospel writers do not necessarily write in chronological order. They often write thematically. And so scholars have taken all of their work and tried to piece together in a chronological manner the life of Christ. That's what we're trying to follow uh, during this series. And today I've entitled our sermon, Perfect Spiritual Vision. There are about two billion people on the planet who identify in one way or another as Christian. Two billion out of maybe seven and a half billion, I'm not sure what the latest population statistics for the planet are, but that's a significant percentage. But they're not all equal in their understanding or agreement of who Jesus Christ is. As a result, they're not equal in their commitment to him as well. Let me illustrate. In Searching for God Knows What, Donald Miller tells of a lecture he delivered to students at a Christian college. He began by telling them that he was going to present the gospel, but leave out one very important element. So they're listening to the gospel. They're supposed to figure out what is Donald Miller leaving out. He described the rampant sin that plagued the world. He said that the wages of sin is death, talked about teen pregnancy and sexually transmitted diseases, all the supporting statistics. He described how sin separates us from God. He spoke of the beauty of morality, telling stories, citing examples of how righteous living was better. He detailed the greatness of heaven. He spoke of repentance and how lives could be God-honoring and God-centered. And describing what happened when he finished the lecture, Miller writes, I rested my case and asked the class if they could tell me what it was that I had left out of my gospel presentation. Nobody raised their hand. Now this is Bible college. Nobody raised their hand. I presented a gospel to Christian Bible college students that no doubt had grown up in their church their whole lives and left out Jesus. He never once mentioned Jesus and nobody noticed. To a culture that believes they go to heaven based on whether or not they're morally pure or that they understand some theological ideas or that they're very spiritual, Jesus is completely unnecessary. At best, he's an afterthought, a technicality by which we become morally pure or a subject of which we know or a founding father of our woo-woo spirituality. Question. In the greatest cause in the history of humanity, to take the gospel to the ends of the earth as Jesus commanded right before he ascended, how effective will a group of Christians be that can hear a gospel without Jesus and not notice? So there may be two billion of us, but we don't all think and act the same way. I love this story. During a recent trip to Portland, Oregon, noted atheist Christopher Hitchens laid down some seriously good theology. 
Most people recognize Hitchens as the author of the best-selling book, God is Not Great, Why Religion Poisons Everything. And since the book's publication in 2007, Christians, or I should say Hitchens, has toured the country debating a series of religious leaders, including some well-known evangelical thinkers. In Portland, he was interviewed by Unitarian minister Marilyn Sewell. The entire transcript of the interview is online. The following exchange took place near the start of the interview. I love a good atheist. Sewell, this is a liberal minister. The religion you cite in your book is generally the fundamentalist faith of various kinds. I'm a liberal Christian. I don't take the stories from the scriptures literally. I don't believe in the doctrine of the atonement that Jesus died for our sins, for example. Do you make any distinction between fundamentalist faith and liberal religion? Hitchens, the atheist, says this. I would say that if you don't believe that Jesus of Nazareth was the Christ and Messiah and that he rose again from the dead and by his sacrifice our sins are forgiven, you're not really in any meaningful sense a Christian. This is a world-famous atheist telling a liberal minister they're not a Christian based on everything he believes as an atheist. Sewell wanted no part of that discussion, so her next words are, let me go someplace else. Hopefully off the stage. Because she's theoretically representing what we believe. This little snippet demonstrates an important point about religious God talk. You can call yourself anything you like, but if you don't believe that Jesus is the Son of God who died on the cross for our sins and then rose from the dead, you are not in any meaningful sense a Christian. Talk about nailing it in one of the delicious ironies of our time, an outspoken, an outspoken atheist grasps the central tenet of Christianity better than the Christian does. What you believe about Jesus Christ really does make a difference. Again, will a minister of the gospel who doesn't believe in the supernatural nature of Jesus Christ ever change the world? Will any movement of Christians who don't believe Jesus is the Messiah and the Son of God, born of a virgin, living a sinless life, performing miracles, walking on water, raising the dead, healing lepers, healing blindness, will any part of the Christian movement that doesn't believe in a miraculous Jesus ever change the world? Marilyn doesn't believe in the cross. She doesn't believe in the virgin birth. She doesn't believe in the resurrection. What good is that version of our faith to a world that needs forgiveness and eternal life? The movement Jesus envisioned depended upon people assessing him, seeing him, perceiving him accurately. We must get Jesus right. But that was a journey. It was a journey because of people's expectations, even the disciples' expectations. It took time. And often, as you know, reading the Gospels, Jesus was often a little coy about his own identity. He didn't reveal too much. He wanted people to discover him. But once it happened, a movement resulted that would storm the gates of hell and is intended to do that even today. Now, I want you to turn to Mark chapter 8. This is an incredibly important uh, 
point in Jesus' life, I'm sure you're familiar, especially with the Matthew version of this passage. I'm talking through the Mark version because part of our story is only in Mark. Mark chapter eight, beginning in verse 14. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one in front of you. It's gonna be on page 33. So about three quarters of the way through this book, we'll start the New Testament. It starts the numbering system over. It's on page 33, Mark chapter eight. Mark chapter eight, beginning in verse 14. They had forgotten to take bread. So they're they're moving from one side of the Sea of Galilee to the other. They had forgotten to take bread and did not have more than one loaf in the boat with them. And he, Jesus, was giving orders to them saying, watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. They began to discuss with one another the fact that they had no bread. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, why do you discuss the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet see or understand? Do you have a hardened heart? Having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? Do you not, and, and do you not remember when I broke the five loaves for the 5,000? How many baskets full of broken pieces you picked up? They said to him, well, 12. And when I broke the seven for the 4,000? How many large baskets full of broken pieces did you pick up? They said to him, seven. And he was saying to them, do you not yet understand? or Don't you get it? And they came to Bethsaida. Now here is a story that only appears in Mark, and this is a fascinating story because it looks like Jesus flubs a miracle. They came to Bethsaida, and they brought a blind man to Jesus and implored him to touch him. Taking the blind man by the hand, he brought him out of the village, and after spitting on his eyes and laying hands on him, he asked him, do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I I see men, for I see them like trees walking around. In other words, he's got some sight, but it's blurry. Then again, he laid his hands on his eyes, and he looked intently and was restored and began to see everything clearly. And he sent him to his home, saying, do not even enter the village. Jesus went out, and he basically was telling him not to tell other people that he just healed him. Jesus went out along with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi, and on the way he questioned his disciples, saying to them, who do people say that I am? They told him, saying, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, but others one of the prophets. And he continued by questioning them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered and said to him, you are the Christ. And the full quote in Matthew, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And he warned them to tell no one about him. Just three simple points from this passage, and we're going to talk a little bit about what continues after this passage as well. Until we draw the right conclusions about Jesus, we deny overwhelming evidence. So at this point in Jesus' ministry, it's time for him to to look to the cross. He's ready to go there. In fact, the passage right after this, the next story, he starts talking about that. And we'll tie those together in the third point. But his disciples have actually been a little slow to draw all of the right conclusions. It's not just the people around Jesus in the crowds or the Pharisees or the Sadducees or others who have been slow. His disciples have actually been a little slow to get it. And it seems that at this point, Jesus is actually frustrated with the twelve. They come back from Gentile territory, and when they cross the lake out of Gentile territory, they come back without many provisions, especially bread. And so that's what Jesus had acknowledged, that they were short. He warned them to be aware of the leaven of the Pharisees. Well, they're thinking, is Jesus worried about whether we have enough bread in the boat? They only had one loaf, so they didn't have much. 
Jesus isn't talking about that. He's talking about something else. Jesus is fed up with the religious crowd always asking for a sign. And Jesus feels like at this point in his ministry, he's quite a ways into his three-year ministry, he feels like he's done enough for anybody with an open mind. People who are blind now see. People who are lepers are cleansed. People who are crippled from birth now walk. The Bible describes at times that he healed every manner or every kind of illness when crowds of thousands would come to him. There was really nothing going on in the human family that Jesus didn't solve, that Jesus didn't cure. He fed 5,000, 5,000 men plus women and children, so the feeding of the 20,000. He fed 4,000 in Gentile territory. The first miracle was Jewish, this is Gentile. 4,000 plus women and children, so the feeding of the 15,000. Jesus has done those things publicly. He has given everyone enough to know that he is Messiah and Son of God. His disciples witnessed even more. They had some of the private miracles with Jesus. And in that one short, one of my favorite sections of scripture, that short 24 to 48 hour period where Jesus is with his disciples and he demonstrates power over all manner of our existence. He's out on the sea and the winds and the waves are about ready to threaten their lives and the disciples are wondering why he's not concerned. He stands in the edge of the boat and he commands the winds and the waves to cease. And then they go from there to, to a shoreline where there's a man who's been demon-possessed. He's full of many demons. He's got superhuman strength. He's broken out of chains that he was bound with. And Jesus casts the demons out. And then they go from there to this woman who had this issue of blood, and, and he heals her. And she had spent all of her money on doctors, and nobody could heal her. Then he goes to a home and raises a young girl from the death and, dead. And in that 24 to 48-hour period, Jesus has, and I believe this is the purpose of the apostles putting these stories together, he's demonstrated that he has power over nature, demons, sickness, and death. When is enough enough? What does Jesus have to do? The disciples were not arriving at faith soon enough. And so Jesus starts warning them about this. He starts sort of poking them a little bit. He's poking the bear and he says, watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And the leaven of the Pharisees was they always wanted another sign. Jesus would perform a miracle and they'd say, show us a sign so we know who you are. It's like, hello, did you just see what I just did? And Jesus is concerned that his disciples are similarly not arriving at the natural conclusions they should be arriving at. And so he talks about the leaven of the Pharisees and Herod, and they're thinking, was he talking about bread? Did we bring enough bread? Guys, check the lunchbox. Check the cooler. And so they're literally having a discussion about whether they have enough lunch. When Jesus is saying, don't be like them. Nothing is good enough for them. Jesus said, why do you discuss the fact you have no bread? Do you not see or understand? Do you have a hardened heart? Having eyes, do you not see? Having ears, do you not hear? Don't you remember? When I broke the five loaves, see, here's the point he's making. Don't you guys, the 12, weren't you there when I broke the five loaves and, five loaves and fed 5,000? How much was left over? When I broke the seven loaves and fed 4,000, how much was left over? Don't you understand? Don't you get it? Are you as dense as our enemies are? 
that's in the Greek. His point is this. I am the bread maker. I'm the bread of life. Weren't you there? Do you still not understand the driving force, the active force behind everything you have observed since you've known me? His point is, guys, there's a point at which we all have to decide what to do with the evidence. And I've been with you long enough. I've been with you long enough. What's your decision about me? C.S. Lewis touched on this well. This, he made this quote famous. I think it's original with him. He writes, I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus. Like, I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level of a man who says he is a poached egg. We could update that, but it's funny. Or else he'd be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else he's a madman or something worse, because he thought he was the son of God. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He have not left that open to us, and he did not intend to. Jesus forces us to make a conclusion. Either he is the greatest religious fraud in the history of religion on this planet, or he is God. There's no room for anything in between. And it was time for the 12 to decide. Any more need for evidence, put them in sort of bad company, and Jesus was making that point. Are you like the Pharisees? You like Herod? They keep needing another sign? I want you to think for a second how relevant this is to much of Christianity today, to the Christian ranks. Much of Christianity, in fact, I would suggest it's possible most of that two billion people that I mentioned is still looking for a sign because they have all of the evidence that you have. They're looking at the same religious documents. They're looking at the same book and they're not concluding what Jesus wants them to conclude. Jesus, to many, is nothing more than a first century rabbi who got A's in ethics class and theater and public speaking 101. And because they don't accept his deity, if you notice this in churches that don't accept Jesus as the son of God, not only do they not accept his deity, they don't accept his ethics. They reject his ethics, all of them. See, if he's not God, he really isn't relevant to how we should live our lives. If he is God, we bow to him and we do exactly what he says. Second, sometimes spiritual vision gain is progressive. Just like loss is progressive, spiritual gain is progressive, and that's what's going on here. It's a bit of an odd point. This is an odd passage. But I said that because of this miracle, which is just a fascinating miracle. Jesus and his disciples are at a town called Bethsaida. A blind man is brought to Jesus. 
Jesus doesn't perform a public healing. He wants to do this privately. We're not sure why. Maybe because he's doing this object lesson for his disciples alone. I suspect that's the reason. So the man is taken outside of the city. And then we have the most bizarre miracle in the New Testament because it's a two-stager. It's plan A, then plan B. Maybe it's a failure. Some suggest, and I think this is them not understanding what's going on in this passage, but you'll even look at commentators who will suggest maybe this man lacked faith and then he sort of found it after he was half healed. The problem is the passage never mentions that. Maybe Jesus didn't have his quiet time because he was dependent upon the Father as he walked in this world. Maybe Jesus came in contact with some Galilean kryptonite and his superpowers are failing. But how can Jesus flub a miracle? He tries to heal the man's blindness. The guy has some sight and he sees people walking along like trees. Then Jesus again touches him and he sees perfectly. And I love this passage because it shows the brilliance of the gospel writers. After his first attempt, the man could see, but nothing was clear. And this was a miracle that was a metaphor for the disciples' growing but imperfect spiritual vision. Again, think of the context. You guys don't get it. You kind of see who I am, but you really don't. You have sight, but it's not clear. And then after the second attempt, the Greek word is telugas. He could see clearly at a distance. He had complete restoration. He had 20-20 vision or better. See, the kingdom of God can't move forward until we, as its inhabitants, have this telugas, this perfect vision of Jesus, a clear view of who he is. Anything less, and we'll never try to undertake the cause that we are a part of. Which is the third point, a clear view of Jesus opens the door to God's kingdom, God's influence in this world, what the church became, and our commitment to it. So after this miracle, they travel to a Gentile city. I believe it's a Gentile city still in Jewish territory, Caesarea Philippi, that was home to many temples, many historic sites dedicated to false gods. And under the shadow of this of this city that's full of world religions, Jesus asks the ultimate question in verse 27. Who do people say that I am? And they told him, well, John the Baptist. Others say Elijah. So the John the Baptist thing would have been John the Baptist maybe raised from the dead because I believe at this point he's been beheaded. So some say John the Baptist, and he'll come back to life. Others say Elijah, an Old Testament prophet that, that is sort of come back to life. Others say one of the prophets. And he continued by questioning them. In other words, so this, he's, he's continuing to just keep poking. And finally he says, okay, who do you say that I am? Peter, who always wanted to represent the group. I love Peter. Impulsive, stupid at times, reminds me of myself. Peter answered and said to him, You are the Christ, the son of the living God. Matthew includes the whole quote. And he warned them to tell no one about him. We knew this was coming. It was no shock. 
I mean, we expect them to get there eventually, right? This is Jesus 101, this is no revelation to us. You knew the end of this story, if you've read this passage before, the one in Matthew, you know, okay, eventually the disciples get it, they're a little slow on the uptake, but eventually they get it, that's great. But what's interesting is what this revelation sets the stage for. If you look in Matthew's passage, then Jesus explodes into this passage about, yes, you are Peter, and on this rock, which either means Peter as a leader in the early church, or the confession that Jesus is Christ and God, on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell won't prevail against it, and I'm going to give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. You will hold salvation in your hands as you spread this message about who I am. This set the stage for a prophecy about the church and the birth of the church, the prophecy about the unseen role of Jesus in his death, burial, and resurrection. Right after this, the next verse says, he began to teach them that the Son of God must suffer many things and be rejected by elders and chief priests and killed and after three days rise again. Doesn't do any good to talk to them about the cross if they just think he's a good dude or a good moral man or the Messiah. That doesn't do a thing good, but if he's God... Now it's time to talk about why he came to earth. So it opened the door to that conversation. It opened the door to Peter's resistance to this plan due to his expectations of the Messiah, where right away he says to Jesus, after Jesus talks about his death, he says, whoa, 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 whoa. Jesus, Jesus. I like to think I'm a spokesman for the 12. They haven't elected me, but I'm self-appointed. Jesus, this whole death thing is not a good idea. Stop it with your stinking thinking. This morbid idea that you're going to Jerusalem in order to die. We've got a couple years invested in you. We're invested in the Jesus movement. We're with the miracle maker. We're with the guy that can do anything. That's not what we came along for. And Jesus says, get thee behind me, Satan. You have in mind the things of men, not the things of God. But this opened the door to that conversation because now Jesus is acknowledged as Messiah and God. And God, what he wants to do is so much greater than the disciples ever imagined. It opened the door right after that to a discussion about martyrdom where he says, if you're gonna be a part of this cause, Peter, who wants to make it all about Peter, you're going to be a part of this cause. You need to be willing to deny yourself and take up your own cross and follow me. The cross I'm going to bear soon. That's your path. I'm going to be martyred, but we're going to change the world, and I'm giving you the opportunity to join a movement of martyrs. All of those messages and points came after this clear view of Jesus. He's not just a Jewish king. He's God. None of that happens without us understanding that. Can you really build a movement on a Jesus who is just a moral teacher and a good guy? Do you know the churches in America, North America, Western society, around the world generally, that aren't conservative in their theology of the person of Jesus? represent all of the dying denominations in the Western world. And where Christianity is growing, it's where people say, I believe this. I believe it's historic credibility. And I believe Jesus is exactly who the gospel writers represented him to be. Because there's power 
in that name, and there's power in that message, and there's power in that movement because it's empowered by God. Can you build a movement on someone who thinks they're God but they're not? No. Or knows they aren't and lies that Jesus doesn't sell. You can't build a movement on just a Messiah's death and resurrection. That Messiah must be more. He's got to be God, and that's what the disciples finally concluded. And you can't ask anyone to die for anything other than a movement of the true God. See, until you get Jesus right, all of those other important issues are on hold. But once they concluded, yeah, you're, you're Christ, you're the Messiah, you're the King, and you're God. Now there's a whole host of sermons that were opened up to Jesus. I want to close with just a couple applications. First, does my view of Jesus match the gospel writer's views or am I in bad company? The Gospels were written to prove the identity of Jesus and its implications. That's their purpose. And they state their purpose quite openly. All four Gospel writers put their spin on it, their personalities, emphasize different things, different theological aspects, maybe different points in some of the same stories, but they all land in the same place. We four see Jesus as the Messiah and God. And the bad company are the groups of people who saw the same evidence, experienced the same miracles, and it was never good enough for them. Pharisees, Sadducees, Herod, Judas. Think about that, Judas. Three years walking with Jesus. See, often it's not whether there's enough evidence. It's the heart that the evidence hits. We all read the same Bible. We don't all accept the evidence. I love this story. I believe this is Max Lucado. He said our church rented a theater to watch The Passion of the Christ on opening weekend. Afterward, we gathered for dinner, discussion, and prayer. I returned home in a sober mood, deeply reflecting on the sacrifice of Christ. When I opened my mail that night, the first letter was from a local church inviting me to visit their special community. They listed the ways they were unique. So this is a church advertising Right when the Passion of the Christ came out, come to their church and this is what you'll get. No religious dogma. We encourage the freedom of individual thought and belief. A humanist view of life. Our faith is based on celebrating the inherent worth and dignity of every person. Well, that sounds kind of good, except the no religious dogma part. Warm, accessible services. Our Sunday services typically include a mix of readings, music, moments of meditation, contemplation, and a sermon. That sounds fine. Our children's religious education program. We teach our kids to be accepting of different beliefs and the importance of each person seeking his or her own truth. I always like to find the truth, not my truth. They study the world's major religions and draw on the core values of each faith tradition. What an open-minded group of people. So if you're looking for a congregation that cherishes freedom of belief and opinion with a warm sense of community and fellowship, please visit us. And he writes, I had watched the horrific suffering of Jesus and heard him say, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And hours later, I opened an invitation to visit a group where truth doesn't matter. And the contrast was overwhelming. 
there's nothing positive about parts of Christendom that misrepresent the authors of the New Testament to the exclusion of the deity of Christ. They are false paths to hope. You need the Jesus, I need the Jesus that was prophesied in the Old Testament, that was born of the Virgin Mary, that was sinless, that is both God and man, that had powers because he was the Son of God to perform countless miracles, many of which are not recorded in the scriptures according to John in his gospel. We need the Jesus who hung on a cross and in his death on the cross paid the atonement for our sins because you and I both need a savior, badly. We need a Jesus that could not be held in the grave because he is God. And so he went to the grave, defeating sin, disease, and death, but death couldn't hold him because he is God, and in his resurrection, he proved his victory over sin and death, and by belief in him and his name, we also incur upon ourselves that victory over sin and death and can be forgiven and can live forever with him. Anything less than that we're in bad company and we're no use to a lost world. Second, assuming your spiritual vision is perfect regarding Jesus, what are you pushing back about? And what I mean by that is this. Peter, as he so often does, does something brilliant. And then he is like the biggest idiot in the 12. I mean, I just love him. The inconsistency. But his heart is just so big. You are the son of God. You are Christ. You're the Messiah and you are the son of God. You're right, Peter. And I'm gonna build the church on that. And I'm gonna go to Jerusalem and I'm gonna die. Whoa, wait a second, Jesus. Whoa, 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 let's not get ahead of ourselves. Let me correct you there. So Jesus is explaining this massive change to their understanding of what he's gonna be and do. And even though somebody gets him right, You're the Messiah and the Son of God. He's immediately arguing with him about the implications of that. Yeah, we're not gonna, I'm I'm good with the whole church thing, but I'm not good with that whole dying thing. And nor am I excited about being a martyr. A lot of us are like that. We get it right. Jesus is Messiah and God. We don't really like what comes along with it. We want Jesus the powerful, Jesus the popular, Jesus the magnificent. And we don't want suffering and death and the divine mission and potential martyrdom. So we kind of don't get on board with it. We may not argue with God about it, but we may not join it much. If you want Jesus, you get the whole package. You want the benefits, you commit to the mission. We're part of the church that is meant to storm the gates of hell and make sure that another person on this planet who doesn't know about Jesus learns and has the opportunity to embrace him before they die. Because our faith in Jesus in this life is the determiner of our destiny in the next. You want Jesus, you get all of him. Finally, you may be here and say, Paul, I, I, I agree. I, I'm at a point where maybe I would embrace this Jesus. 
and maybe been listening for a number of weeks and you're convinced Jesus is who he says he is. And maybe in your life you've never had a, a point where you've known how to sort of cross that line of faith or, or enter into a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. And I, I want to tell you about that because the Bible makes it very simple. We complicate it. And I'm not saying the Bible is simple. The Bible is a pretty complex piece of literature. But coming to faith in Jesus is simple because it is simply belief. We believe that Jesus is the Son of God. We trust that what he did on the cross paid the penalty for our sins, and we need forgiveness for our sins that have separated us from a perfect and holy God. And part of that faith is commitment, commitment to follow him, commitment to sign on, to join Jesus. And if you're open to doing that today and you've never done that before, I just want to read through sort of a prayer of commitment. And if your heart of hearts, you've never made a commitment to follow Jesus Christ, I would encourage you just to, to say this in your own heart as I pray it out loud. And the Bible says that, not this prayer, this prayer isn't magic, but it is faith that begins that spiritual journey. Would you pray with me as I read this out loud? Dear Jesus, I believe. I believe you are the Son of God. I believe your sacrifice on the cross paid the penalty for my sin. I need a Savior. And because you are God, I give you my life. I want to follow you. In Jesus' name, amen. There's a point in our spiritual journeys before which we aren't believers in Jesus and after which we are. And if you made that commitment today for the first time, I'd really encourage you to reach out, let us know. We'd love to get you connected to others here at Bethany so that you can grow in your faith as you follow Jesus. God, we thank you for your word. And I pray that in each of our hearts, in each of our lives, we would first and foremost, recognize that this is the most important thing we have. This is, this is the most important thing we do. Our faith is everything. If you are our creator and you are our God, coming to know you and coming into a right relationship with you as a holy God, there's nothing more important. Help us to see it that way. Help us to see it that way if we've come to know you for the first time. Help us to see it that way if we've known you for 50 years. And help us to join you in all that you are trying to do in our lives, in our city, in our world. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to this sermon. We hope you found it connected you to the God of truth and love who we worship and serve at Bethany Chapel. If you have any questions or want to connect to any of our pastors, please go to our Bethany Chapel app and choose Connect, or go online to BethanyChapel.com and click Come. Thanks again, and God bless you.